Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Isaiah chapter 41, which um, is on page 601 of the Church Bibles, and the large print Bibles is 714. Isaiah 41. So Isaiah 41, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through to verse 10. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up the nations before him, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbours and says to his brothers, Be strong! The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good! And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel... My servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and cast you off, and not cast you off, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let's come to God in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are the God who is not silent, but the God who speaks. And we pray, Lord, by your spirit that we would go from here this morning changed by that same Spirit who inspired your word. Amen. In um, 1989, I won Mastermind. Why are you looking at me with blank faces? Well, the Southend-on-Sea 22nd Company Boys' Brigade Mastermind competition. Just for the record, my specialist subject was the history of the World Snooker Championship. 
I was brilliant, totally brilliant, one by a mile. In our chilly church in Southend-on-Sea, Bellevue Baptist Church, we tried to make the conditions as close to the TV show as possible. Spotlight on the contestant's face, the infamous black chair, and Neil Richardson's iconic theme tune. Da, 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 da. I, don't, I don't have the same kind of gravitas, but um, what does that theme tune say to us? An oncoming army, a drummer by the side of a scaffold, a pounding heartbeat getting louder and louder before a destructive climax and silence. Now, I'm not going to ask, some of, some of you may know, with good reason, that mastermind theme tune was called Approaching Menace. Now, I know some of you will have got that cultural reference. Others of you will be thinking, what on earth, what's mastermind? Let me give you another musical example. Um, I was, I was um, in the States the other week and um, talking about this cultural reference. And I said, you know, the Americans have given us a lot, but one thing that terrified me was the 1975 film Jaws. Uh, and that ruined my chance of... I mean, not that there's never been a great white shark in the Thames estuary ever, but uh, I didn't go swimming. In fact, I, I was, was terrified in swimming pools in South End because of that film. And, of course, that has a very famous theme tune as well. It's another approaching menace kind of theme tune. You know it. Now, musicians... What is, the, uh, what is the interval that gives that particular music its kind of, you know, unresolved tension? The minor second interval, yeah, doesn't resolve itself. Well, whether it's a minor second or whether it's an approaching menace, that could well be the soundtrack to many of our lives in the UK where I come from in England, here in Scotland, as we are faced with menaces that seem legion. Political, global, technological, environmental. There is a great feeling of fear, insecurity, and just plain dread. As many people, I think, feel their lives are spiralling out of control and we're feeling increasingly breathless, constricted by circumstances. Um, a, a writer called Paul Rilio calls this uh, the environment of fear, and it has some, I suppose, important features. Why now are we so fearful? First, we just see the spood, speed of movement in our culture at the moment, which heightens the sense that we do not know what's coming next. I mean, who could have predicted anything that was, was going to be going on that we've had to face over the last few months? And because things are happening so fast, the speed cuts down our time to analyse and react and cope. We're just on to the next thing. Secondly, that speeding, accelerating culture is also what the sociologist Zygmunt Bauman calls a liquid culture because it reconfigures our relationships. We feel anxious because how do I have or how do I establish relationships with people where their identity is shifting and liquid all the time? It's not stable. 
And so many people today in their relationships, there's anxiety and fear. And so because we don't know whether we can commit because people are changing all the time, we cut ourselves off from loving others and receiving love from them. That's a big issue, I think, at the moment. And third, the environment of fear, in a more general sense, is just a feeling of powerlessness. Somehow we have become a society opening to, uh, open to what might be called the blows of fate. Bauman says this, Fate stands for human ignorance and helplessness and owes its awesome frightening power to those very weaknesses of its victims. The impression of powerlessness stands closely with the perception that the blows of fate are random, creating a cumulative picture of an environment where huge, unknowable, unmanageable forces afflict us haphazardly and randomly. Now, I think that is a pretty accurate description of our culture at the moment. It's speed, those liquid relationships, and powerlessness. And for many people in those situations, any thought of God is far in the distance because even if God, he, she, it existed, that God couldn't help me, won't help me, and that is a God not worthy of my worship. I wonder as Christians, do we entertain similar thoughts? Because we're faced with all these same challenges, all these approaching menaces, which just appear overwhelming. And many of you this morning will be asking, where is God in all this chaos? Now in Isaiah 41, the Lord creates his own courtroom scene with himself as both the interrogator and the contestant, I suppose. It's the mastermind scene. And the approaching menace, the minor second chord, the music, is uh, one from the east. Verse 2. Who we think we know is Cyrus of Persia, who is rapidly conquering all before him and who's creating great fear and trembling among the watching nations, including Israel, who themselves are captive. Now, to keep the, uh, I suppose, the marine theme going, as in a cartoon, Israel, the little fish, has been eaten by the bigger fish, and now there's an even bigger fish coming along. And the Lord's first question behind this approaching menace is, who is behind this approaching menace? And God's answer, very clearly and unambiguously in verse 4, God says, it's me. Here we have an unambiguous affirmation of the Lord's sovereign might and right over this event, indeed over all events, past, present and future. He's behind all rulers and empires, whether despotic or benign, and immediately we find that answer awkward and uncomfortable. And so it's worth remembering as we approach 
any approaching menace in our lives, God's sovereignty maybe is behind all things, but God's word is unambiguous that individuals and nations remain responsible and accountable for their actions and are judged accordingly, and yet God is behind them all. And if we do struggle with this, just think of the alternatives. Think about a Lord who is not in control. Something else might be an ultimate explanation. Could we countenance the idea that our God is subject to another God? Or to impersonal fate? Is it pastorally better to say that everything happens if it's just blind chance? Or the result of our free decisions? I find that far more uncomfortable. And maybe if we're still in doubt concerning the evidence for God's reign over history, we can just do a little fast forward to another courtroom interrogation where the spokesperson of another all-conquering world empire, Pontius Pilate, asks Jesus, don't you realise I have the power to either free you or crucify you? And Jesus our Lord, bloodied, beaten, to all appearances, a passive victim. Do you remember what he says? You would have no power over me if it had not been given to you from above. We don't know all the reasons, for we're not God. But I think it is a comfort to know that the Lord is truly the sovereign Lord of history. Now, tragically... There are those who are blinded to this sovereign Lord behind the scenes and who only see the approaching menace. How do they respond? Well, in verses 5 to 7, the story takes, I suppose, a a satirical turn as we see the trembling nations who have been talking a good game and now they see this bigger fish coming along. They see the approaching menace. They hear the music. And they shuffle onto the stage, looking for solace and encouragement in the other, giving kind of tepid pep pep talks, looking for protection from their objects of devotion. I think it's meant to be a comedy scene here. They're building these idols. This this is good, isn't it? This is great. And the, the superpower's coming and they have to nail it down because the idol's about to fall over. As one writer says, in the ancient Near East, not only was the image understood to sum up the reality of the God, but the God in turn was understood to sum up the whole national enterprise and its ideology. When faced with an approaching menace, these nations build from their hands the works of human hands. They need a helping hand and some quick DIY to stop these gods falling over. And under interrogation, these gods that are built by these nations have no answers. They don't know what's happening. They don't know what is happening. They don't know what will happen. They are worthless. Now what's interesting about this passage is that the Bible talks a lot about idolatry the worship of other things in place of God. 
But this is one of the only few times where the, the Old Testament writers focus on not just idol worship, but the construction of idols, the making of them. It's quite unusual. And uh, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a um, an essay that I found from a student, Curtis Chang, who's, uh, who's he's written some apologetics book. This essay hasn't been published, but I thought it's a brilliant essay on the significance of idol construction. Listen to this. He says, The pagan construction project, the building of idols in the face of an approaching menace, is doomed to fail. The usurpers can never fasten an identity with any stable foundation. After all, if an idolater's need for a sturdier identity stems from the weakness of that person's very self, how can he or she hope to create stability by his or her own own efforts? How can an unsteady hand steady itself? The author points to this problem by making a verbal link between the idol maker's internal condition and their building project. The workers come from the ends of the earth, as we read, yet these quaking workers seek to fasten the idol, fasten the idol that won't shake or fall. The author is implying that identity can only be secured by a source external to oneself. The deception of idolatry, the gods that we make, give us that deception that it provides an external foundation and that's why we build things to give us protection. But by focusing on idol making, Isaiah explodes that deception. The source of idolatry is the shaky self. Idols, idolatry is more commonly condemned in scripture as false worship, placing one's trust in something other than God. But by focusing on the practice of idol making, it highlights an even deeper level of sin, the human attempt to supplant God as the definer of who we are. In other words, to summarise, what Isaiah is saying this, if we're faced with an approaching menace, we know that we need to build things to give us protection. But if we don't know who we are, if we need, we've made these things. If, we're, if we don't know who we are, then shaky people build shaky idols. There's a terrible vicious circle as the one who believes their identity is the product of choice is the one most in need of a prefabricated identity. Idolatry and autonomy go together. Idols are shaky because they're created by shaky selves. And we live in a society where people do not know who they are. We're struggling to define what humanity is. We still build things because when the approaching menace comes, we know that we need protection. But because we build these things and we don't know who they are, these idols are nothing. They're shaky. They're not going to give us protection because we've made them. This is a desperate scene, but it's all too familiar to us. Faced with an approaching menace, which could be anything. It could be a superpower. I'm sure the Ukrainian Christians were thinking that when Putin's coming. But it could be Middle Ages approaching. 
or there's a relational breakdown, or I'm about to lose my job, or I am really worried about the environmental state of affairs that's going on at the moment. Anything can be that approaching menace. And where often is our first resort that we go to? The things that we build, first of all, to give us that sense of security, that escape route. And the list is endless. Money, relationships, politics, software, education, gender, work, sport, ethnicity, alcohol, drugs. These things have their place in the world. And they may offer temporary relief and escape. But when the tidal wave of life comes crashing in, as it always does... And again, lots of young people here this morning, and I said to Dave yesterday, when you talk about stuff, at the moment you might think, this is not going to happen to me, what approaching menace. Clear blue skies. Those of us who have lived a bit more, it will happen. The approaching menaces will come. And when life comes crashing in, these things that we build to give us a sense of security and protection they are dashed on the rocks of reality. As verse 29 says in this passage, see they are all false, their deeds amount to nothing, their images are but wind and confusion. Now of course we're devoted to these things. We really believe they will protect us. And we pick up the pieces and we patch them up again for the next onslaught and we give them a second chance and a third chance and a fourth and we become obsessed with them and more compulsive and more desperate and more fearful. Friends, if you trust in idols, you will always be afraid when the approaching menace comes. have to understand that. And now we get to verse 8. Because God speaks. God tells his people that there is comfort to be found in the face of the approaching menace. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. The Lord God, who is the mastermind of history, who is behind all events, is this same God who now speaks and he names. Look at the three titles that he gives God's people. Three titles that increase in a level of intimacy. Israel, my servant. Israel is a servant nation rooted in the history of God's covenantal love. Immediately, rather than having to make our own identity, God says, this is who you are. You're Israel, my servant. There's a title, there's an identity there. I'd be happy with that. I'd be happy being a servant to this majestic God. But there's more. Jacob, whom I have chosen. Often in the Old Testament, Jacob is used as a shorthand for the patriarchal tradition. Not only is God saying, you are my servant, he's saying, you're part of my family. Wow. I'd be happy with the servant bit, but now I'm, I'm, I'm being called Jacob? 
And then it gets even more intimate. The offspring of Abraham, my friend. That's a very unusual term. It expresses a belovedness and an affection and an intimacy. Do you see the significance of this, friends? These exiles have lost their political status, they've lost their land, but they still are because they are loved by God. God says, this is who you are. The nation's trying to make their own identity, but God says, no, this is who you are. Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. And here's the the really important thing that we have to understand and our culture has to understand about the identity crisis that we're living through at, at the moment. These titles only make sense in the context of being an external source. What do I mean? To be called a servant, you need a master. To be chosen, you need a chooser. To be called a friend, you need a friend. Moreover, the living God, in the living God, we have an external source that is not shaky, but forever stable. These passages in Isaiah 40 to 55, you read them and you think, this is a bit weird. There's these amazing passages about God's majesty and there's the stupidity of idolatry and they're kind of put together. But that's the point. It's a compare and contrast. God, who is forever stable and not shaky, gives us our identity, so our identity is stable and shaky. God says to his people, well, you're not going to only be a servant, and, but we'll review the contract after two years. Or, I'll be a friend at the moment, but, you know, might change if circumstances change. Or you're part of the family, but you know, you do something wrong, you could be kicked out. No, God says, this is who you are. Not liquid, but solid. Isn't that amazing? These nations are making these idols that are toppling down, and God says, no, this is who you are. Our identity comes from an outside source, the living God. And so the awesome Lord who orchestrates world events is the same Lord who takes the whole, the hand of little Israel, a bit later on, worm Jacob, and says, do not fear, I will help you, do not be afraid. This Lord is our Lord. Do you remember I said, if you trust in idols, you will always be afraid? Well, I suppose I could say, If you trust in God, you will never be afraid. But that's not quite right, is it? Remember what C.S. Lewis writes in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe when Susan is asking about Aslan. Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. 
He's the king, I tell you. And it's this Lord, who is the first and the last, who in the first century walked out on the water to his disciples, disciples who were struggling, and they were terrified because they believed Jesus wasn't approaching menace. And the Lord comes to them and he says, don't be afraid. I am the great, I am, I can control all things. I'm behind all these things, even the wind and the waves. And this is this Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true Israel. Who in his person and work takes the identity of the suffering servant chosen by God and the friend of sinners. We are united to him by God's spirit and his identity becomes ours. My old boss, Mike Obi, says this, we are not to fear the idols and elemental principles that people without God do fear. We need not fear them because the God who is infinitely more powerful than us can deliver where we cannot. One current challenge for us is whether we fear God enough so that we need not fear the things that the nations do. What we fear reveals a lot about where we think power truly lies. What exactly do we fear and in what order? And it's in this Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are to root ourselves as we are united to him by God's spirit. His identity becomes ours and we experience humble confidence and security in knowing who we are, in knowing that we are his the real presence of our crucified Lord. And it's only as we take our place with Jesus, bringing to the cross the pain, sin, our false selves that we've tried to make for ourselves, that we will become servants and chosen and friends of God. As this guy Curtis Chan says at the end of his essay, In the end, Jesus' nails are the only ones that hold any of us up. And so Peter, writing later on in his letter, can say to the Christians who are facing increasing uncomfortability for being Christians and even persecution, don't fear what other people fear. Don't fear their threats, but in your heart set apart Jesus Christ as Lord. Friends, as I close, just think about this. Think about the approaching menaces in your life that will be very personal to you. You know what they are. Is it a job worry, a relationship worry, a health scare? What are the the minor seconds in your life where you hear the Jaws music? Maybe it's when a criticism of a colleague leaves you feel crushed. God says, your worth and identity is not determined by this criticism, but your identity in Christ. Or when you or any of us feel threatened, God says, you belong to Christ and no one can ever snatch you out of his hand. And when you feel you don't belong, God says that in Christ you are part of his family and part of a family tree and heritage that can be traced before the beginning of the world. You belong to Christ. And as you go out this week into what can be a very 
fearful presence that the world we're in at the moment, the culture of fear, we know that God has us. We are his. Our identity is secure. That's here and that's across the world. One of the, one of the students I teach in a seminary in, in the States and one of my students uh, was in the US about to go back to uh, a place in India where it's about to be the month where the, the death god of Kali is about to be celebrated all month. And she doesn't want to go back. She's scared. What a great comfort in this, a passage like this. In uh, January 1933, shortly before Hitler came to power, um, the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer preached a sermon um, at the Vespers service in the evening of the second Sunday after Epiphany. And it was a time of great tension in Berlin and of widespread fear. And this is what Bonhoeffer wrote that I think is very applicable to our situation today. You of little faith, why are you so fearful? In these words we hear all the disappointment of Jesus Christ and his disciples and all his love for them. Do you still not know that you are in God's hands? That where I am, God is? Why are you so fearful? Be of good courage, strong, firm, adult, sure, confident, not shaking with fear. Don't hang your heads. Don't complain about what bad times these are. I am in the boat. And Christ is here too, in the nave of this church. So why not hear him and believe him? Therefore, friends, over the wind and confusion of the claims of all the 21st century false gods and false lords, in the face of all the approaching menaces that are continuing to come left, right and centre, the Lord calls us his little worm church not to be afraid but to renew its strength. We're small. We're often tired we're often dispirited, we're seemingly defeated, but our identity is stable and secure. And so with confidence, we can go out of here this morning and proclaim to the scared, shaky selves all around us the hope and certainty of the Lord of history. We call the nations to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing truth it is that uh, as your creatures we don't have to come up with our own identity. We can't. Futile exercise. We know how shaky we are and we just produce shaky gods that cannot deal with an approaching menace. And yet, in the Lord Jesus Christ, you give us our identity. You tell us who we are and what an identity it is. Lord, forgive us when... We know that and yet every day we still try and make these prefabricated gods. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that our identity is in him. He is the true servant. He is the one who is chosen. He is the friend of sinners. Lord, we pray that we would be those who know that our identity is secure and so there would be a joy and a freedom as we go out and proclaim this wonderful, awesome Lord of history. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for its clarity and its relevance to us this morning. Amen.